This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Around the time Deb Sharper's husband, Tommy, turned 38, he became forgetful, started to act odd, and lost interest in his longtime passion of driving and repairing cars. He grew paranoid and eventually suffered a breakdown in which he sought to harm his children and himself. The family had him admitted to a psychiatric facility, and he was diagnosed and treated for depression. It would take until he was 44 that he was correctly diagnosed with frontal temporal dementia, a rare and progressive condition. He now receives full-time care in a nursing home. We spoke to Sharper about the impact of frontotemporal dementia on her family, her experience as a caregiver, and why she has become an advocate who organizes support groups for other caregivers of people suffering from the condition. Deb, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me to um, talk with you tonight. We're going to discuss frontotemporal dementia, how the condition has affected your husband and your own journey as a caregiver and advocate. Let's start with the condition itself. What is frontotemporal dementia? Frontotemporal dementia is a disease that affects your frontal your frontal lobes and your temporal lobes. It is a progressive decline in behavior, language, or even movement. Um, but you have to remember with FTD, the memory is usually preserved, so you don't have the memory issues. And it typically um, has the onset of in the mid-40s to 65 is when the typical onset is. And how does this condition manifest itself and progress? In our situation, it was pretty gradual. Um, I noticed a decline in him probably at the age around 38. I noticed that he wasn't doing his hobbies like he usually did. And he was just acting just a little bit different. Um, I was lucky enough that I've been with him since I was in high school. So we're high school sweethearts. And so I could definitely tell a difference in over the years of how he was changing. Um, you know, some people think, oh, it's a midlife crisis. What's going on? What can I do to help this situation? And everything I've done did did not help. And so we started looking to see maybe it was depression or those types of things. And um, then we finally got our diagnosis after, oh, let's say eight years of from the onset. In the case of your husband, was he self-aware at all about the behavioral changes he was experiencing? I don't think he did was at all. Um, he was 
really into demolition derby cars. He's a mechanic. He's an amazing mechanic. And him and his um, brothers and his son would do demolition derbies. And they'd even go into different sanctions of derbies. And all of a sudden, he started selling his derby cars. He started not wanting to work on his cars and um, just became more um, self, self-centered, I would say, just not wanting even to get out of the house, um, just acting a really different than what he normally did act. And so that's why we were thinking maybe more depression. Um, and then he started having a hard time concentrating on his job and complaining. It was just a very bizarre change of personality in him. I know you've since had contact with many other caregivers. Has Have you seen his progression being fairly typical of what others experience? I'm going to tell you, if you know one person that has FTD, that's the only person that you know of, of theirs. Everybody's onset could be different. Everybody's journey is different. But it's so funny because when you finally have someone to talk to, you guys, you can connect so well. And you can just kind of giggle at some of their behaviors. And you're like, thank God I'm not alone. This wasn't just happening to me. But um Yeah, it's just everybody has their own journey with this. You know, some people start with PPA, which means that um, they can't find the words to talk or um, they jumble up different words for like a fork or a spoon. Um, Tommy's was a behavioral um, FTD. So his onset was behavioral stuff such as paranoia, um, just delusional thinking that people were out to get him, just very strange oddities. Also uncleanliness, like as, as it progressed, he really didn't care on his personal hygiene, which was nothing like him at all. Um, we even got to the point with him that I actually had to call him every day to make sure he was up. He was taking a shower, eating and getting to his job on time. And I'm trying to do this working full time, but trying to make sure that he can still be a functioning in the society. You mentioned it took eight years to get a diagnosis, and you initially thought it was just depression. But what was that eight-year period like? How many different doctors did you see? Was he getting treated for things like depression that really weren't the issue? Absolutely. We started out in 2003 buying a repair shop. Um, It was a shop that my husband worked at for 11 years, and he was an amazing mechanic. Um, by the year 2008, I noticed a real decline in his um, work abilities, um, like tasks, organizing, getting the jobs done and those types of things. And then one day um, I came after work to go work on bills and I came into the shop and he just like came from out from under the hood, looked at me with tears in his eyes and he goes, I don't even know where to start. So right there, we knew something was going on. And um, so we went to the doctor and all that jazz. And they told us that it was probably severe depression. So, of course, put on depression pills. That seemed not to help. So we talked and we decided that we've already been in this automotive business for five years and, you know, in debt. We can't keep on going into debt if you're not able to work on the cars properly or manage your employees or those types of things. So we decided that it might be better if he would go get an eight to five job, punch in, punch out. And so that's what he chose to do. And he did a factory job for quite a while doing that. And then he went. So between that time of closing the business, getting a factory job, we were at physician's office and they were just changing meds, thinking it was depression. So by then, I, let's go up to 2012 now, um, he went back into the automotive field um, 
And he seemed to be very happy to be back in that field doing service writing and those types of things. But then that's when the paranoia and the delusional started happening. And he thought people were like out to get him or he was stealing and things of that nature. And so then I asked for more help. And so we went to another hospital and was put in um, for about a week trying to get some more answers. And of course, still depression, they say, and more medicine. During that hospital stay, he did lose his job. So then again, we're out of a job. So within, oh, five, that, that many years, he was probably in and out of four different jobs because he couldn't keep a job. He'd have them for about a year and then he would lose his job. And one time he lost his job for fighting. And my my Tommy was never a fighter at all. And so that was a different um, personality trait for him too. And that's where that's where the behavioral part came in. You know, he just couldn't understand that he couldn't just fight with somebody. So they become to, like teenagers is kind of what I want to say. They just lose that ambition or not ambition, but the knowledge to how to handle yourself in public. At the same time, you're getting drugs that, that are oh. affecting your brain. Does this have any counter effect on frontal temporal dementia? Absolutely. You know, because they would try to turn off those paranoia delusional. So then you got medicated so much that you just sat in a chair and um, stared off into space. So I'd be like, okay, now these meds are not working. What can we do now? Um, In 2012, we had an episode that happened that actually um, I came home and it was the most uh, heart wrenching thing. Um, I was supposed to go to a swim meet and in something inside my gut told me, do not go to that swim meet for our daughter. You got to remember, we're still raising kids at this time. He's in his early forties and we have teenagers. And for some reason, my gut just kept telling me, do not go, do not go. Um, And so I came home and to check on him because also as I'm driving home, his work facility called me and said, he didn't show up for work today. (sighs) And so I came home and I had the wonderful dear Deb letter. So he was trying to um, hurt himself because he knew something was wrong and he could not ever get answers and help. And so then we went up to another physio- another um, hospital stay and we got, um, he was put in the hospital for about two months doing for severe depression, doing all these things that we could do. And actually this facility decided that ECT treatments were going to be the best priority for him. Well, And you know what ECT is, that's electrical shock therapy. So this guy that has dementia is getting shock therapy on top of it, but we didn't know he had dementia. So who knows if that sped up that process or not. He was up there for, like I said, about two months doing electrical shock therapy. He had nine episodes of those. Um, And what electrical shock therapy is actually clears your mind. And um, then you have short-term disability, short-term memory with that. So your brain has to heal then all over again so that I don't know if it like recharges you or what it does. And, And so he came back home after those and didn't work for about a couple of months so his brain could heal. But he did get a job after that, and he was pretty good, I would say, for about a year. He was actually talking to us. He was actually being part of the family again. Um, but then after a year, then we started going downhill again and starting the job losses and those types of things. When was he finally diagnosed, and how was he finally diagnosed? He was finally diagnosed in 2015 and at the age of 44. At this point, we're at the at the point that 
couldn't keep a job. He'd get a job and then he couldn't, um, he got the last job that he had was a delivery company and his delivery company that he was delivering at was out of our area. It was in a town, I would say about an hour away and he had to find addresses and stuff. And he was telling me that he could not use GPS. He had to be able to read the map um, and that he thought that they were watching him on TV. He couldn't listen to the radio. So it really manifest at that point. And it got to the point at night that he wanted to make sure that he knew the maps, that we would put take the maps out, look at them. Then also um, he wanted to make sure he knew the manual because I think he was so afraid that he was going to lose another job. Finally, he got a job again. And so he was so afraid. And I would actually have to read him the manual because he could not get it to sink in. And so at that point, we definitely needed more help. And so then we went to another physician to try and get more help with that. Who actually diagnosed him in the end? We're lucky enough that we're really close to Mayo Clinic. And so Mayo Clinic actually gave us the diagnosis. Um, And it is a shock. You're so, um, because at, in 2015, there were no treatments and there still isn't treatments, but we're come a long way than what we were then. So once we got the diagnosis, it was go home, get your affairs in order. This is a progressive disease and he'll never be better. And at he was 44. I was 40. I'm just like, are you kidding me? What are we going to do? And so I tried to get like home health to come in and help us. I tried to get some agencies. Well, I couldn't even get my insurance company to help us pay for these agencies to help him be able to stay in the home to be able to make sure he was safe. Because at this point now he's starting to get lost and I couldn't trust him to stay home alone and not get in a car. So it was a very emotional time and very strenuous time for our lives. Well, how did you cope with this as as the wife? This was your, you know, your your high school sweetheart. You're managing a, a family where increasingly the burden is going to be on you for raising these children and and bringing in the income. What's what was that like for you? It was. It was a struggle, that's for sure. At one point, I actually had um, three different jobs to try and keep afloat. I'd make sure that he'd be home with Alyssa. But Alyssa was um, in high school at this time. So, you know, she's working also. And we had to watch our pennies, you know, late on payments. It was just the most, I can't even tell you, you were drowning. But you could keep just your nose above water. But you wanted to stay positive and happy because if you were got mad or sad, then that would bring then Tommy down into a different hole and he would get mad and sad. And so I tried to keep my positive energy going and as much as I could. But I even thought, okay, I even tried to do the Love Dare book, you know, trying to get him to fall back in love with me. I thought, well, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the one that's being weird and all those types of things. So I tried everything. I also even... Because at this point, you're like, what is wrong with him? This is before he was diagnosed. I had, I went to so many different doctors. I actually went to a doctor that um, I tried to um, change his like spiritual chakras and stuff. I mean, I was going anywhere and everywhere to try and find out what was wrong. What were you told? You were told that the condition was irreversible, that there weren't treatments, that, that uh, it was a progressive condition. Were you given any access to resources or connection to other caregivers at that point? 
At this point, no. Um, I'm hoping we're changing the way that when we tell people about FTD, I'm hoping that we're getting the education to the doctors that you just don't give them a pamphlet and say, go home and get your affairs in order um, because I had no one. And so I actually started going to the Alzheimer's Association um, for support group. Uh, my daughter and I would go. I, remember, I'm 40. She's 18. And we're going to these support groups for elderly Alzheimer's patients. And it just was not a good fit for us. It was on a different level than what we were. And so um, then I started Googling and trying to find a trying to find an organization. And that's when I found AFTD, which is the Association for Frontal Temporal Degeneration. And I will say they were my lifeline and they're the ones that got me through most of this. You talked a bit about the, the economic pressure on you. At some point, Tommy, your relationship with Tommy shifts from being, you know, your, your partner to, to being you being his caregiver. What is your social life like at that point? Very minimal. Like we never went, went anywhere. We either were at work or church or I was home. And I just, I remember back thinking back now, you know, my house was spotless. My yard was, I had an acreage. It was absolutely beautiful. I had the best flowers because that's where I could put all my energy and control something because I couldn't control my life. I couldn't control anything, but I could control a clean house and I could control my yard looking good. And so what a crazy looking back sickness now, I think, oh my gosh, you know, all the hours spent doing that. I mean, I was on a cycle and a schedule just to make myself save it. I just, I feel sorry for our kids, you know, for them to see all what was happening, but it was a way for us to cope. Um, I didn't really take him out in the social setting too much just because of his behaviors. Um, after the ECT treatments for that one year that he was doing pretty good, we actually um, joined a roller derby team and he became a referee just because we needed to be able to have something that we could do together. I was trying to just get him out of the house and he really did latch on to that roller derby. And let me tell you, he, he loved it. And so I'm so thankful that we found that for him his last year of not living with us, you know, how, how socially isolating was this whole experience for you? Uh, very social isolated. I, I had my work and then I had my, you know, my kids and, I feel like I really socially isolated my daughter because I never wanted her to leave me because I needed somebody to be with me at the house too. So it was a double-edged sword for her. She, But she, she's great. She's 26 years old now and doing wonderful. But you think back, that's not the typical high school years that you want to have your kids have. You became involved with the Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration. How did you become involved in advocacy? Um, first, what I did is I wanted to support, there was no support groups really in the Midwest. Um, and so I needed to get a support group going. Um, so I started with support groups. I have another um, family that lived probably about 40 minutes from me. And we met each other at like Mayo Clinic days. They have a day every year that they have an FTD conference. And so I met her there. And so I knew I had one more person in my vicinity. And so I just started advertising for a support group and we got about six people in our area, but some people had to drive an hour, hour and a half just to come to our support groups. 
And then I got one started down in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, and we have, that one's a really good active um, support group down there. So we got two now in Iowa, which I'm so thankful for. And how important has it been to connect with other caregivers? Oh, uh, that is the number one thing that I got to tell everybody is you need to find a support group. You need to find somebody you can talk to. And because um, you guys, we can shoot ideas back and forth with each other. Like I, I can say, well, this is how I take Tommy to medical, you know, medical appointments. I keep him in a wheelchair and I don't let him get out of the wheelchair. I just keep the wheelchair going. So we give each other ideas of how we can control their behaviors a little bit. Um, and just, a way that we can laugh and cry together because if you don't know, if you've never lived with FTD or you've never taken care of somebody with FTD, it's, it's a bizarre disease that no one will understand. What advice would you offer anyone starting down this path as a caregiver? Number one, reach out to the AFTD. Um, Alzheimer's Association also is, is good, but AFTD specializes in the PPA, the behavioral, and all those types of things. So they're more geared towards FTD. Um, and they have a wealth of information on their um, website. And it's amazing that this organization is all like, all like I'm a volunteer for it. I don't get paid for anything. I just do it about it because I want to help that next person never be lost how I was lost. So there's a wealth of information on there and then you can get on support groups. And now we're doing Zoom support groups, which are awesome because then you don't have to leave your house. If you can't leave your house, you can at least dial in and um, get together with more um, caregivers. How is Tommy doing today? Today, he lives in a nursing home. He's been there since um, since 2015. I actually had to put him in because I couldn't get any help in the home, and um, it was not safe for him or us to be together. And so it was a court order that he could no longer live with, Alyssa and I. So, And he actually now lives... The sad thing is I'm in rural Iowa. There are no nursing homes for young dementia patients. And even now they're even closing more around me. And I just don't know where our future is going to be with, um, with locked units. There are, he lives two and a half hours from me. I go down one weekend a month and I also, you know, do my phone calls and stuff. And then his mom goes down one weekend a month. So we always have two weekends that somebody's with him. Um, he's nonverbal now. He does not talk. He has to be cued on everything to do, like to go to the restroom, to take a shower, to brush your teeth. You have to cue him. He paces. He's a walker. He likes to walk. Um, but yeah, he doesn't talk at all. The last time I did hear his voice uh, about a month ago, but before that, it was March of 2022. And I will tell you, COVID wreaked havoc in the nursing homes. I mean, I see such a decline in Tommy just because he didn't have that personal touch. He didn't have me as his caregiver coming down to visit him. I got, I was taken away from him for about, oh, let's say eight months. I didn't get to see him. And everybody says, well, why couldn't you drive down there and go through the window? Like look at him through the window and talk. You don't get it with behavioral FTD. If he would have saw me through that window, he would have broke the window to come through. He doesn't get why I can't be in that in the um, care facility. So we would do FaceTime and Zoom and all of those things to just be able to keep each other connected. But um, he lost his voice, I will say, a lot within that eight months because he didn't have that conversation and things back and forth. And, and how are you doing? Oh, I'm living, that's for sure. I'm lucky enough that... Um, 
I just, every day, this is what I do. Every day I think I got to make today last and I got to make it the best day I can because I have a loved one in a hallway in a locked unit living and I got to make a change for him and for others. So I try to keep positive, try to do whatever I can to get the word out. And, you know, the thing that I... I'm guilty of it too. When he was sick and he was having his depressions or we thought that was it, I always pretend that we had the perfect life. I didn't talk to people about it. I just kind of hid it away. And I've learned now that I'm not going to hide anymore. I'm going to be loud and proud because we can't keep um, mental illness behind closed doors. And I know that his is a mental illness, but it started out as them thinking it was, it was dementia. And if I would have been maybe more um, active and telling people more things, you know, that would have been better. Another thing that I would recommend any family is if you get diagnosed with um, dementia or any type of mental illness, contact your um, local police. Because if my, if the local police would have known that Tommy was ill with dementia, things wouldn't have gone the way they would have, I think. They would have been more um, passionate because they thought that he was on drugs. And I kept saying, he's not on drugs. He's got dementia. And they would take so many drug tests when he got had to go into a hospital. And it was just the behavioral. It was not drugs. And so you have to be open and honest with your team. You have to have a team behind you. Deb Sharper, frontotemporal dementia advocate and caregiver. Deb, thanks so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.